Hey folks, it's Jeremy, the host of Blamo. Thanks so much for listening. This is a preview of one of our exclusive shows on Patreon. These are member-supported shows, meaning they only happen because of our incredible members and community. So check out a preview of the episode, and if you like it, consider joining us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Blamo, where we have tons of exclusive Blamo episodes, shows, our amazing Slack group, and we're adding new things for members all the time. If not, no worries, we still love you, and we literally have hundreds of episodes of Blamo all free for you to dive into. Thanks so much. Hey guys, Rob here. Before I get started, it's AMA time, so if you have any questions you want us to sound off on or are dying to hear a hot take on something, shoot me a DM on Slack, email me at rob at blamopod.com, or you can text us or leave a voice message at 917-267-2495. My guest this week is Justine D. She's a legit born and raised New Yorker who's been DJing in the city since the late 90s and became a go-to party promoter at the heart of New York City's famous nightlife and music scene in the 2000s. She co-hosted weekly parties like Action at Lit Lounge, Tiz Was at Don Hills, and the movable feast that was Motherfucker. If you know the book and documentary Meet Me in the Bathroom, you'll know how much she was a big part of that time and place. What I love about Justine is how she knows exactly who she is and how effortlessly she's been able to put her true self out there in the world, from her timeless style that's all her own, to the way she shares her incredible taste in music without ever pandering to current trends or tastes. So of course we talk about New York's music and club scene of the era, how its inclusivity brought people together, and what nightlife used to be like in the days before social media. We also talk about how she combined vintage designer pieces with contemporary labels to make a style all her own way before that was a thing. But mostly, we talk about how her passion for music and fashion brought her into a community of people she considers family to this day. She's a New York City icon, and I was stoked to catch up with her. So without further ado, let's get going. All right. Well, Justine, thanks for for joining me. Thanks for having me, Rob. Yeah, yeah. So like I was saying before, I mean, just uh, it just feels like this time in our lives that we knew each other in the early 2000s in New York City. Um, you know, it just kind of feels like it's in the air again. Um, you know, I see people talking about like Y2K style. And of course, with Meet Me in the Bathroom, this focus on sort of the last rock and roll moment and, you know, ever, it seems. Um, and like you were there in the middle of it, right? You were you were working the entire time as a DJ. Um, I think, you know, it's so, you did so much, I guess I I don't want to try to summarize it on your behalf. So do you want to kind of introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, so some people know me as Justine D, which is, which is my actual name, but it's also my DJ name. And, you know, I, um, I really made my career as a working DJ and a nightclub and live music promoter um, for pretty actively for about 15 years, although I still DJ. So I'm coming up on my 20, 30 year of DJing. Um, And, you know, I think before I started my career as a DJ, which was in, I believe, 98 or 99, um, I was really just a music geek and um, not only a music geek, but also a ravenous consumer of underground subcultures within New York. And um, to elaborate on that, I mean, you know, 
I'm not sure if everyone really understands what that means, but as a young kid growing up in New York, going to nightclubs, going to live shows incessantly from, from the ages of 14 till, you know, um, 23 before I became a DJ really. And, um, and absorbing all of these different scenes, which uh, I think my years as a music fan just kind of set me up to become a DJ. Mm. And yes, and so I was definitely very in the mix of, kind of in the thick of it all um, with the underground New York rock scene, um, which that did exist. And, and it was pretty prevalent in the mid 90s, mm. mid to late 90s before it blew up and became an international, internationally recognized scene. Right. And I think it's important to, to note, I think you were born and raised in the city, right? In Manhattan. Yeah. Yes. I was, um, I grew up in Chinatown. Um, and, you know, uh, went to various schools all over the city. And I am definitely a native New Yorker, which I think it may be pretty rare. I'm, you know, it's super rare. I was trying to think of anybody else I knew that actually born, was born and raised in Manhattan. And I really couldn't think of any. Yeah. So I definitely was, I feel as if I was kind of lucky because when I was coming of age as a teenager, I was still, um, I saw kind of the grittiness of New York, which was still pretty prevalent in the early nineties. Um, and so of course this is all pre-internet and like pre, uh, pre-social media. So, you know, you basically have an emergency quarter and, and if you need to get in touch with your parents, like if something happens after one of the concerts like that you're going to, then you give them a call on a payphone, but (laughs) (laughs) did you ever have to use that quarter? No, no, no. I was a pretty resilient kid and left Mm. my own, but left to my own devices. I could kind of get out of any problem I may have had. Right. I'm yeah. I feel very confident about that. (laughs) Um, yeah. So what were like the spots, um, that you'd go to the clubs or whatever? Yeah. I mean the spots, you know, when I first started going out at the age of 14, um, I went to places like the pyramid, which I think recently closed. And that was in the East village, um, on Avenue a. And I also, you know, that these small venues, then, um, you would frequent those on a weekly basis. Like if you could sneak out of your parents' house and, um, Mm. and you would, also have a large club experience as well. So you had small clubs and large clubs, mega clubs, which were prominent in the eighties and nineties, like Palladium and the limelight. I definitely went to those clubs um, because these mainstream and like I put mainstream in quotes, mainstream venues housed very left of center subculture driven parties. I mean, like freaks, you know, kids, you know, club kids, goths, um, they had rock and metal nights. Um, I'm speaking of limelight specifically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that. That was like, I mean, that had just a very gothic vibe just from the outside. Right. Well, yes, of course, a big church, but, um, (laughs) but they did have a great Tuesday night party called communion, which was, which, which was the premier goth party. Um, in New York at the time. And I went to that a few times in high school and more so in college later on mm. in the 90s. 
Yeah, I think so. I ended up, I mean, I grew up in the Midwest and went to school in the Midwest. And, but I always had this dream of New York City, like from all the music primarily. So I'm, I thought of New York City as like the land of the Velvet Underground and, you know, the Ramones and, and television and later on Public Enemy. Um, so it was kind of wild actually getting there. But what I remember about those clubs is they were just like, they felt like almost like a big operation. There was always like ambulances. Twilo is the one I usually go to because they had pretty Euro adventurous European DJs um, at the time. But yeah, I guess what I remember is that there were just all these different facets of New York City. So, and that kind of relates to when we get into the 2000s, it's like, as the narrative starts taking hold is like, there was nothing, then the strokes and then, you know, Interpol and the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, there was tons going on at the time, right? There was so much going on. And, you know, I cut, you know, I think it's, people like to say that New York was dormant for, for decades and decades from, from, from CBGB's era until the strokes, nothing happened. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's not true because in any, I think in any small town, I think in any large city, there's always something simmering. Um, and, you know, the, the scene that was that kind of ushered in the strokes, and this is in the mid to late 90s, is a scene that I was very much a part of, is kind of this, this new mod scene in, in New York, which really centered around um, these parties centered around looking and dressing the part, you know, like all of the guys looked like they were Paul Weller singing in the jam or, and then um, all the girls kind of emulated maybe Marianne Faithful or whatnot. But, um, but these were really scenes that, that paid homage to sixties British groups, mostly mixed with like a, a smattering of, CBGB's like Blondie and television era um, bands. And also they celebrated a, lo a lot of current British music, like, like the bands of the time, Blur, Oasis. Um, mm -hmm. So it was this really interesting, um, it was this really interesting mix of kids who were so dedicated to not only the music, but then the fashion of the time. And that's kind of the scene that um, that I like to say, you know, I the Strokes were definitely not a part of that scene, um, but it was the scene that that embraced these bands in New York that that eventually rose to um, international notoriety. Right. Yeah, because I think an important thing about the Strokes is that they just went from starting a band to like being international superstars in a very quick period of time. Right. Completely. Uh, I think in my eyes, it was that way. You know, they played a party that I threw called Tiz Was. I did that with my, um, with my DJ partner for many years, Nick Mark. And Nick Mark started the party um, originally. And that was at Coney Island High on St. Mark's. Mm. And I was really just a fan of the party. I started going there as a late teenager, you know, 18, 19 years old, 20. And in college. And then I began to work with Nick, but this tricks kind of went from playing small parties like ours. Mm -hmm. And within a year they were headlining Reading festival. Yeah. So wild. But I guess uh, another thing is like, there was kind of already a scene that they kind of 
sort of fit into and like could get shows and everything like that? Yeah. You know, I, um, the strokes kind of looked the part. Mm-hmm. So, um, kind of looking the part means that you're of a certain age, you're, you know, young, uh, you have a particular type of haircut, you like a mod type haircut, you probably wear blazers and Converse sneakers, um, ties, but, but they were, I think they looked the part and, and to be honest with you, I mean, I can't lie when they did play, they did sound very different from, from the other bands in the scene. Mm. Um, like they weren't derivative. Uh, they didn't, they didn't sound like a throwback sixties band, which a lot of these, you know, local mod bands sounded like they sounded like their own type of thing. Um, you know, a lot of people referenced or said that, that the stroke sounded so much like Iggy and the Stooges. And I still don't agree with that statement because while there was a rawness to them, it, it wasn't in that punk type of, um, or like pre-punk way that, that I think Iggy so much symbolizes. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of in this lo-fi manner, um, but they really didn't sound like anyone else. Yeah, I think, um, so I agree. And I remember there was kind of like a little bit of snobbery um, <laughs> at the time of like, you know, they're really channeling a vibe that was very like New York from, you know, maybe the 70s. Like, so that's possibly true. Um, but they did it with such a very thought out kind of aesthetic. I, I could really see, and that was more typical in my experience um, with bands coming out of England. They kind of had the whole package thought out, like Oasis, right? Um, whereas the U.S. indie in the 90s was very much like flannel over a graphic t-shirt that's, you know, three sizes too big. Yeah, indie rock, you know, you could, uh, I'm I'm definitely not a fan of 90s American indie rock. And, oh, no. <laughs> and my husband and I were kind of discussing this where, where 90s American indie rock is like very sexless. Um, mm. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not um i don't think there's a level of showmanship there that that kind of ever interested me i think it's lacking but but i think getting back to the strokes i think they did kind of have the whole package very much in the way that the british bands come like prepackaged mm-hmm. and and they look and sound a certain way right yeah i mean that so this actually makes sense and that must have been the kind of lonely experience being in the 90s where it's like the dominant sort of underground um, musical genre didn't. And w- when you say that, it wasn't, um, I guess the way you characterized it, it just, it's like it wasn't fun, right? Because when, no. I, when I think of your DJing, it's like, it's rock and roll, it's fun, it's like a little bit messy, but it's just like, you know, it's enjoyable. Yeah, right? you yeah. You can dance to it. Exactly. It makes you want to like jump around and move around and, um, and, it, and you know, a lot of my fans love indie rock. My husband loves indie rock. You know, I mean, I'm just not, I think it, I think there was a point where it just became kind of like drab mm-hmm. for me. Um, you know, and, and the scene that I was a part of was a little bit more about kind of having a certain, a certain 
rock and roll attitude, which, which is so affiliated with youth. And in hindsight, like it's not important at all mm-hmm. as a grown adult. But I think when you, I think when you are a young musician or like a young, young scene star, which a lot of these kids really were, um, things like that are very important to you, how you come off to other people and the persona I think that you're trying to put out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think especially now, yeah, I think, I mean, it's almost like the transition from shapeless whatever 90s thing into <laughs> the 2000s was like, you know, we never looked back. And I'm just thinking of, you know, the early 2000s and when you were talking about the strokes had like a particular look that really stood out. I mean, men and the state of menswear in 2000s was not like a great place, right? That's where... You know, this constant. So, the idea of somebody who looked after their appearance or, you know, after their grooming was relatively new. There was like a term for it, right? Well, I'm sure, I'm sure in, I'm sure to mainstream culture, like, you know, there were really just, I think there was a lot of bro culture happening in the 2000s. And weren't we coming, weren't we coming off of, I don't know, like that rap new metal type phase? And so, that was kind of the norm, um, you know, like frat boy fashion or whatnot. But, but mm-hmm. I've always been immersed in scenes where people really do make the effort, especially the men too. Like mm-hmm. they're kind, you know, I mean, men and men, especially I think in that in that late '90s mod scene, walked around like modern day dandies. I mean, they were you know like um, ascots and you know three piece velvet suits and so when the strokes came around i think it was just a continuation of that it mm. i think it actually is a bit more subdued um compared to most of the guys that i hung out with right and who, yeah yeah so you were djing at tis was um and you're and you're spending like 60s 70s like that kind of music i, I remember that yeah, I uh, I did play a lot of '60s garage, especially um, and '60s soul, and um, a lot of '70s rock. Not, not I don't know, not like '70s prog rock because that's just scary. But um, but things things very much like the Stooges, the Ramones, Blondie, um, very New York centric bands that I loved and kind of. I I don't think I really grew up listening to that type of music but i um but it but it found its way into all of my dj sets for 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 a good five-year period um and i always i always played a lot of current bands of the time as well so so i would play a lot of um you know british based bands um and then the great thing about when what happened with the new york scene is that when it before it blew up, I, I was able to play the local bands that I really liked, um, like the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and, and like LCD Sound System kind of before they broke. Mm. Or what I now appreciate about uh, these scenes that I, you know, DJed for or maybe helped cultivate was everyone was pretty happy. Like everyone was you know, kind of the exact opposite of angry. Everyone was pretty blissful and, um, and like blissed out and happy. I think, 
I think mostly because of the music mm. and um, because the music that, that we all loved uh, had, had such a strong impact on, on the way that we acted. Yeah, I mean, the, so I think I, I'm trying to remember where we met. It must have been at Lit. I would guess. It, well, of course, it was through Mike Goodstein. Of and, course, yeah, the great connector. <laughs> the, the great connector of people. The great connector of yeah. I mean, talk about a social human. He was even more social than I was, and you know that was my career. So I mean, I was paid to be social. So mm-hmm. I think. But um, but when I was not working, I did not go out and I did not hang out with people and. Mike, Mike was way more social than I was, but we probably met at Lit, mm-hmm. very dark, dirty, grungy basement that I still can't believe I worked in for so many years. But, um, you know, I was telling someone recently that uh, because someone posted a meme about Lit, I think on Instagram, and I can't remember exactly what it was, um, but it probably had something to do with drugs or whatnot. And, um, and, (laughs) and I was DMing with someone and I said, you know, I was always so, uh, disappointed every week before going to work at lit because I wore such nice clothing Mm. and I knew that I would have to be in the dark, dirty, damp basement of lit for six hours. That really and I found that to be kind of unfortunate. And this was, I think, back when smoking was still okay inside, right? Yeah, it was. It started. Um, I started working there in two thousand two when they opened, and uh, the smoking ban was very much uh, was was not a part of New York yet. So mm. it was it was unbearable. You know, I don't smoke. <laughs> right. No, it's you know it's funny because at the time, if you're if you're going out to see live shows, it's just part of the experience, right? There's no idea, like, you know, what if we did all did this without the smoke? Um. And we, we actually thought it was going to kill nightlife. You know, all, all of us who threw parties professionally said, oh, my God, smoking ban. You know, while I didn't smoke, I thought. Want to hear the rest? Listen to the full episode and tons more exclusive episodes on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com forward slash blammo. You also get access to our members-only Slack community where we chat about clothes, watches, coffee machines. I mean, you name it. It's all there. So visit patreon.com forward slash blammo, and we'll see you there.